In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 Lightspeed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired! I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Travel back in time with me on this episode of Notably Disney, as we remember the majesty of Disney during the mid-20th century. In particular, we are putting a spotlight on the 1964-1965 New York World's Fair and Disney's role at that magnificent exposition. First, a quick review of the fantastic music box set that debuted at about a decade ago, entitled Walt Disney and the 1964 World's Fair. And then it's our feature for today, a conversation with Emily McDermott and Courtney Guth, co-hosts of the Book of the Mouse Club podcast, as we review Don Hahn's 2017 title, Yesterday's Tomorrow, Disney's Magical Mid-Century. This was a great conversation, and it's my pleasure to share this discussion with all of you. Needless to say, we talk about the World's Fair for quite a bit. But before we get into the respective reviews, just a note of some recommended readings of other materials related to Disney's attractions from the World's Fair. First up is a new book by Andrew Kist called Walt Disney and the 1964-65 New York World's Fair Great Moments. This book actually just debuted at the tail end of April, I look forward to checking out this title, given my fascination with this topic. And Andrew was actually recently a guest on the Book of the Mouse Club podcast uh, to discuss his historic tour of Walt Disney World books, so definitely check that out. There are also a bunch of interesting and accessible academic journal articles about the Disney attractions from the World's Fair. And all the pieces I am mentioning here are listed in the show notes, and they're available for free via Google Scholar. On the Carousel of Progress front, there are several, uh, with a few focused on gender, gender dynamics. One is called There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, Historic Memory and Gender in Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. This is by Lynn Weiner and was published in 1997 in the Journal of American Culture, and it centers on the portrayals of women and families over time as illustrated in the classic show. 
More recently, a piece called Expo Afterlife, Corporate Performance and Capitalist Futurity in the Carousel of Progress. That was written by Lee Kornfeld and was published in 2017 in the journal called Women and Performance, a Journal of Feminist Theory. This article is concentrated on how corporate capitalism is framed as superseding the roles of women in the household uh, through this attraction. Shifting over to It's a Small World, Laud Nushin wrote, Circumnavigation with a Difference, Music, Representation, and the Disney Experience, It's a Small, Small World. Uh, this was published in 2014 in Ethnomusicology Forum. And these are just a few examples of some articles that may extend your interest and investment in learning more about how scholars interpret some of these attractions. So certainly check these out. So now it's on to the music review of Walt Disney and the 1964 World's Fair. Now this is quite a treat and an absolute must-have for music aficionados, especially Disney ones. There are a handful of priceless CDs in my collection, among them the 2005 release of Disneyland's 50th anniversary, which was called A Musical History of Disneyland. It was a six-disc box set, very expensive. I think it was at least $125 at the time, and it covered the evolution of Disneyland through its music. And right alongside that, in my book of fantastic music produced by Walt Disney Records is this one, which debuted in 2009. So Walt Disney and the 1964 World's Fair is a five CD box set that centers on the World's Fair and the different Disney attractions that were mainstays there. The music here is amazing and transporting as I'll mention, but one of the standouts is a 24 page booklet that accompanies it. So many of you may know of Disney historian Stacia Martin, and she's known for giving talks at the D23 Expo on mid-century Disney music, among many, many other uh, capacities. And she relays a thorough history of Disney's presence at the World's Fair alongside the presentation of some wonderful artwork, blueprints, photographs, and so much more in the way of visual treats. The late Bruce Gordon was also chiefly responsible for the development of the supplements, so you put two classic uh, Disney historians and notable figures together to create something, and you really have something that's uh, very, very worthwhile. It's a quick read. It's nice to look at as you're listening to the music, so it's great. Now, the music, that's the centerpiece, and you have more than three hours of great instrumental work, including entire shows from these performances and rides at your fingertips. So going through them individually, disc one is centered on Progress Land, and that's essentially the space that housed the carousel of progress that we all know and love today, uh, albeit in its original form. And in addition to having an entire recording of the 20 minute long show, there are tons of instrumental versions of There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. Um, all of these variations coming from different points from the score. So you might hear that Dixieland version. And what's really cool is they throw in the version that you may have heard if you ever rode Horizons at Epcot. 
So lots of really great Sherman Brothers stuff here. And this is a treasure trove of content. You even get to listen to some recordings that very well could have been lost to time, such as an early script reading of Carousel of Progress and the Sky Dome Spectacular that served as General Electric's showcase of technology. One of my favorite tracks is the music to buy toasters by, which features a very romantic version of the Sherman Brothers ditty. A bonus disc, otherwise known as the fifth disc, shares an entirely alternate version of Carousel of Progress with a different script. So this is definitely from the Disney vault in all of its glory. Disc two shifts from the optimism of the 1960s, as we very well appreciate through Carousel of Progress, to more of the reflectiveness of some hundred years earlier that's a chronology of Abraham Lincoln's life. So Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln was absolutely monumental. It had the most lifelike audio animatronic that Disney had created, and mind you, this was really during the infancy of Disney audio animatronics of the early 1960s, and we hear all the different components of the show from the unapologetically American chorus that commences the pre-show called The Illinois Story to the main show score with Royal Dano's soothing, if not gravelly, voice. What is so cool is that listeners can both enjoy the full grandeur of the main performance in addition to the score by Buddy Baker on its own. How very much appreciated. For those of you who cannot disentangle earworms from your head, you may want to skip disc three, though you would inhibit yourself from listening to every possible variation of It's a Small World that you could imagine. There's a bunch of tracks outside of the main attraction score, such as another example of a spoken introduction by Walt Disney. All Many of the discs have this. And there are some variations of the It's a Small World song and theme from Disneyland Paris that was arranged by composer John Debney. I, for one, never tire from listening to the score. I find it to be great background music when I'm studying, and it's just absolutely joyful. Disc 4 may very well be my favorite of the bunch, and that's saying something because all of these individually are fantastic. Disc 4 centers on the Magic Skyway, which was the precursor to many Disney attractions like Spaceship Earth and Universe of Energy that have centered on the history of time. Uh, And Magic Skyway looked at everything from the dinosaurs to earliest humans, and all under the notion of sponsored by Ford, you got to ride in Ford vehicles. It was a very cool concept and executed really neatly from what photographs and videos indicate. Now, though the Magic Skyway attraction only encompasses a portion of the disc, the accompanying tracks reflect the splendor of George Bruns's instrumental work via the pavilion's atmospheric tunes. Some of these were adapted from some of Bruns's other productions for Disney, such as the Flubber Waltz from the Absent-Minded Professor and the Serengeti Serenade that would be incorporated just a few years later in the Jungle Book. Moonlight Time in Old Hawaii is a romantic tribute to the Pacific Island music. Yeah, I could definitely see this being played at the Polynesian at Walt Disney World. But my absolute favorite track, even at a mere minute and 45 seconds, was first played during the Disneyland special on Magic Highway. 
The track is called Nation on Wheels, and whenever I think of 1960s Disney music, this optimistic and somewhat frenetic ditty comes to mind. So there's so much awesome 60s music packed within these five discs. And considering the antiquated nature of all of this music, it's worth highlighting that the audio quality is ridiculously good. Though this box set came out in 2009, you can still find it for a good price on Amazon or eBay. Um, as of recording time in here in early May 2019, you can find it for a reasonable $25 or $30, but this is definitely money well spent, and I would argue even if it were double the price, it would still be a very good investment because you're going to be listening to this endlessly. Thinking about It's a Small World or a Carousel of Progress for a while, you might be just as tempted as me to hop on a plane and head straight to the Magic Kingdom for a fun Walt Disney World vacation. If that's the case, when you are ready to book your next trip, might I recommend Donna the Vacationeer with Second Star Vacations. Donna specializes in all Disney travel destinations, including Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Aulani, Disney Cruise Line, and Adventures by Disney Guided Tours. Unlike big box travel agencies where you're just another number, Donna is your personal travel consultant. Your needs will always come first, plus she is available to you before, during, and after your vacation to help ensure it is everything you dreamed it would be. Best of all, her services are free. For more information, go to secondstarvacations.com or email her at donna at thevacationeer.com. Tell her we at Notably Disney sent you. And now it's on to our main feature, a book review of Yesterday's Tomorrow with Emily and Courtney. So let's get straight to it. Here on Notably Disney, we highlight the books and music by and about the Walt Disney Company. So it is with great pleasure to bring on two fellow Disney podcasters, who are known for their very own Disney book-themed podcast. Joining me today on Notably Disney are Courtney Guth and Emily McDermott, co-hosts of the Book of the Mouse Club podcast. Welcome to the show, Courtney and Emily. Thanks, Brett. We're excited to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. It was great to get your message on Twitter and that we could put this together. Well, it seemed like a natural fit, considering our common love for Disney and certainly in terms of books. And the, the context of this episode is that uh, we're celebrating the 55th anniversary of the 1964 New York World's Fair and Disney's connections to that event. And the book that we're going to be chronicling is actually uh, attends to a lot of aspects of the World's Fair as a lot of as well as a lot of other aspects of Disney during this period of time. There are major events, innovations, experiences and other things within the mid-20th century. The book is 2017's Yesterday's Tomorrow, Disney's Magical Mid-Century by Don Hahn. And uh, so we're going to dive right into it shortly. But I'd like for each of you to begin by maybe briefly introducing yourselves as well as sharing with our listeners a little bit more about the Book of the Mouse Club podcast. All right, sure. Um, so I'm Courtney. And I have always loved Disney and always loved reading, so it's great to be here to talk about a book. Um, I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland, uh, so not too far from Florida, about a two-hour plane ride. And I was fortunate enough to visit Disney pretty frequently as a kid. My parents joined the Disney Vacation Club in 1994, and then exactly 20 years later, 
I moved to Florida after graduating the University of Maryland with my English degrees. That's where the love of books comes from, to do the Disney College program as a way to get my foot in the door with the company. I worked at Space Mountain, and now I continue to serve as a cast member in a backstage role. So I have to put in that all views are my own and do not reflect the Walt Disney Company. (laughs) Always got to get that legal disclaimer in there. Yes. (laughs) And hello, uh, notably Disney listeners. I'm Emily uh, Courtney, and I met at the University of Maryland, so that's how she and I connected. We were TAs together for an English course, and when we discovered that we both loved Disney, our friendship just skyrocketed and went from there. Um, So I'm recording. I'm still in Maryland. I'm originally from South Jersey, uh, but after graduating from the University of Maryland, I stayed here except for my brief stint where I also went to Florida in 2015 for my Disney College program. I worked in entertainment. Uh, Mickey and I were really, really close, and uh, he shared with me lots of fun secrets of his Florida home. And after that, I'm back here in Maryland, and now I'm a high school government and politics teacher. So we started Book of the Mouse Club podcast uh, last summer as a way to keep in touch. We had kind of floated the idea of doing a podcast, um, but I felt like, you know, I wanted to be in a safe territory as a current employee of the Walt Disney Company, so didn't want to get into news and rumors, and I reached out to Emily when I had the idea. We both love books. We love reading. Certainly people have interviewed other authors before, but I felt like there wasn't really a space just dedicated to literature all the time. Um, So that's kind of where the idea came from. And we're coming up, I think, almost on a year in June. So crazy to believe that it's gone by so quickly. Yeah, we cover a wide range of books, anything that can link to Disney. So that can be our first book was Marty Scalar's Dream It, Do It. So that was a memoir. But we've also done the original fairy tale text. Uh, We did Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. We've also done uh, the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. So even original text that then Disney has adapted. So really anything that we can connect to Disney, we're going to read. I feel like we won't run out of material anytime soon. And of course, there's room enough here for everyone. We appreciated the shout out um, in your introduction episode. And it's great that you've expanded that beyond the realm of literature to also the music side. So big patrons of the arts and excited to see where you take your podcast. Well, yeah, thank you very much. And 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 that the really wonderful thing about Disney books is that, and as both of you can probably attest, is it really covers the the wide gamut. I appreciate how you both cover you know the original source material too. And notably, Disney we're also kind of interested in academic texts, so like journal articles and things that are produced about Disney in the in the scholarly community um, outside of the the mass market books as well. But collectively, I think. It's, we're just living in a wonderful age where there's just so much great books and titles and pieces that are coming out there about all different parts of Disney. So um, it's a really cool time. I agree. There's just so much out there. And I didn't I wasn't aware until we really started podcasting and started like planning out what books we wanted to read of how much there is. And every time I go to a store, I'm like, oh, wait, there's more. Oh, wait, I haven't seen that book before. And then when we met up, I met up with Courtney back in February at the International Festival of the Arts in Epcot, and they had a whole section of the festival pavilion full of books. 
And I saw Don Hans yesterday's Tomorrow There, and we actually had talked about, we're like, oh, that could be a good one. So we're super excited you reached out to us. And when you're like, would you be interested in Don Hans? We're like, yes. Um, But like, who knew? Who knew there was so much out there? I've had it on my to-be-read shelf for a while. Um, Speaking of Festival of the Arts, not this past one where Emily and I got to meet up, but in 2018, Don Hahn was actually present there and gave a presentation on the book. Um, so I purchased it there and I was able to meet him and he signed it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have this signed book sitting on my shelf and we just haven't gotten around to it. So when you suggested it, I was like, I'm all in. I need to read this. I literally bought it that evening. As soon as we cemented, we're like, okay, we're going to do Don Hunt. I was on Amazon. I had it in my hand a day and a half later. Well, that's just absolutely fantastic. I'm glad the glad the timing worked on that front. And I have to chime in. I I know that both of you are from University of Maryland and a Disney connection there that listeners may not know about is that um, Jim Henson and Kermit have a statue right in front of the student union there. So he's our favorite alumni. I love that you know that because that's one of my favorite fun facts too. I have quite a few pictures in front of that statue as I'm sure Emily does. I don't know if we have one together. So next time I come back to Maryland. Oh, you're right. I'll actually be on campus this weekend. So I'll send you guys an updated photo and see if it's Maryland day this weekend where campus is open to the public. And usually someone dresses up the Jim Henson statue in something. So we'll see what what's going on on campus with him. But yeah, he's our favorite alumnus and we always have to go see Muppet Vision 3D to pay homage to our University of Maryland heritage. That's so awesome. I, awesome. I just had to throw that in because I love when, when they're just like different institutions or places in society that wouldn't seem to have a Disney connection, but there are. And so I think that's a perfect illustration of, of that. So shifting into yesterday's tomorrow, I'm hoping we could maybe begin by just outlining what our expectations were coming into this book, because it sounds like, you know, having an autographed copy by Don Hahn's pretty cool. So that was on your radar and then getting the book right away. What were, what were both of each of you thinking about once, once you initially purchased this book? I think I had um, a pretty clear idea of what it was going to be because his presentation was a little bit of a condensed version of the book. Now having read it, he didn't go into everything, but recognizing within the chapters, I was like, oh, he shared that picture in the slide. Like it all started coming back to me. So I had a pretty clear idea of his vision um, and it met my expectations, but I'd love to hear from you guys if you you weren't as familiar. I had no idea what I was coming into reading this other than I saw it was another big size coffee table book and I got a little afraid like I did with ink and paint but (laughs) this was um, a lot easier to digest so I was really enraptured and I love his writing style which I know we will talk about in a moment Um, but expectation wise when I hear mid-century I definitely think Disneyland and 1955 um but i was really pleasantly surprised of how much really is included in that 19 in that mid-century era it's a lot more than just 1950 to 1955 it's i think he spans about almost 20 years in here from 1950s to like 1970 yeah yeah definitely covers quite a, a wide period of time and and like i i remember this must have been at least six to nine months before the book was released in 20 and I think it was toward the end of 2017 and I remember as soon as I saw the title I'm like oh my gosh this is a must purchase because I love Don Hahn's writing and I love this period of time in Disney history so it seemed like a a, a perfect marriage of sorts 
uh, in that way. So I, uh, I think I originally briefly reviewed the book right after I first got it, but um, this uh, preparing for this podcast allowed me the time to kind of revisit it and really look at things in depth. So I was super pumped about this topic. Well, maybe if we could provide an overview of what yesterday's tip. I feel like I'm going to mess up the title. It's yesterday's tomorrow. I want to say like yester tomorrow, but that's like a like an interventions type of word. Yes. <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll just invent new words here. That would be awesome. Um, but with the Sherman brothers of you. Exactly, exactly. You know what? I have to have to pay homage to them as well. And they will get some attention in this book. But let's uh, maybe before we dive into all the different aspects of Yesterday's Tomorrow, providing a general outline of this book. Um, indeed, it really covers the, the whole spectrum of the Walt Disney Company from about the time Disneyland opened um, in 1955, a little bit prior, and then going on until just about the opening of Walt Disney World, there's a few nods to to the opening of the resort um, toward the end, as well as its development. But in this book, we have references to everything from Disney's role in motion picture, in terms of film innovations, to different magical and very um, notable creations in the theme parks, such as the Monsanto House of the Future. It also covers Disney's role at the New York World's Fair in 1964-65, which we'll obviously discuss, and even um, references to projects that d were kind of outside of the common Disney scope, such as working on the, the Mineral wow, Mineral King. I was searching for the word Mineral King project. So a lot of different things are covered here, television as well, animation, technology. It's really whole widespread. But what were your thoughts in terms of the actual construction of how this is framed? Because there's, in some ways, there's a, a chronological mm -hmm. timeline, but in other, other moments, we're jumping around a little bit based on topic or content area. Would each of you like to shed some light on the overall structure of this book? Yeah, so I agree that at first it seems very chronological because we go from film to television and Disneyland, which is a very natural progression. But I think once we hit that Disneyland, it's really hard to stay chronological because so much is happening at one time. And I think that was one of my biggest insights is as you're reading this and they keep throwing the years out there, you're like, how much was Disney doing in one decade or in even one span of, you know, two or three years. So I think the theming definitely takes on. And I like how Don Hahn, he tries to link those themes together. Like we talked about, like before getting into the World's Fair, he talks about the Sherman brothers and he talks about bowling in the Rockies and the skiing in the Sahara, which is the Mineral King project. So he's kind of building up to the World's Fair or he builds up to Disneyland with those different elements that you need. You need the music. You need the innovation with technology. You need the film. So I like how he builds the themes that it's not random. Even if we're jumping around years, it's still a very um, logical progression through these different themes. Something I noticed as well was that kind of Walt is the thread that brings all of this together. And he's mentioned, of course, throughout. It opens with him as a pioneer. But I appreciated that it does go beyond Walt to some of his artists and other futurists of the time who had such a profound influence, not only on Disney style, but all of the things that were occurring. You know, 
with the house of the future and other elements that have a Disney connection, but go beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. And and we see that illustrated even through the the book art. Um, at the front, we see some artwork of the monorail uh, coming out of the contemporary, that famous piece, to some um, different other vehicles and kind of modernist art. There's a little image of Walt Disney, but you're right. I, I love the notion of Walt is the thread, but there are so many um, different components that are connected together in that sense. Yeah, I remember in the presentation, um, Don Hahn kind of started to go on a tangent of like futuristic cars, but then you tie that back together. Like, yeah, you're looking at those Model Ts or different fun, um, iconic car models, but then it ties back to Disneyland and Bob Gurr and the aero technologies and kind of their shaping the ride vehicles within that time period as well. So transportation, you know, to get you to a destination, but also just as a means of an attraction. Indeed. And the, the way the book is framed is there are 26, if I'm getting that correct, 26 chapters. And each of them, some are only a few pages long, others are a bit longer. But they they try to touch on different pieces of Disney. So for instance, there's the selling peanut butter chapter, which is Disney's role um, in television in the 50s and um, having those different uh, partnerships with companies to, to help their overall bottom line. There's Meet Me at the Fair, which is, of course, related to the New York World's Fair. Were there any surprising topics or themes that were addressed in this book, given that, again, it covers mostly everything Disney within this roughly 15-year period of time? Any surprises? Could Maybe, Courtney, you could start and then sure. Emily? Uh, for me, the bowling in the Rockies chapter was really interesting. Um, this was about Walt and team kind of investing in this sports complex, which really you start to realize is a precursor to managing more of a larger recreational area that would lead to, of course, Walt Disney World. Um, but I had never heard of this facility. And so it was fun to see more about like that tangent within Walt's vision and kind of one of his pet projects. I, re I really enjoyed, I think, the middle of this book where they have a lot of that. Um, we hear of these topics, like the creation of Cal Arts. Um, I really love the selling peanut butter chapter. I The commercials to me, like, I wish I saw more Disney characters in commercials on TV. I would think it would be so fun. I get why the Walt Disney Brothers didn't like doing commercials and the integrity of their characters, but I just think it would be really fun to see character selling peanut butter or something that's not Disney World. Um, but I love the middle of this book, I think, the most because we hear about these things, like in the Bob Thomas autobiography, uh, in the Bob Thomas biography, not autobiography, and in other histories of Disney, they only get touched on. So it was really cool to see, like, the Rockies and the Mineral King kind of actually, like, take center for a second. Like, for a good four or five pages, it's just about that concept that Disney worked on that I don't think we get a lot of in other works you make a good point there because i feel like it gets to the end of walt's life often in biographies and you spend so much time like on the 30s and the 40s and then i feel like the 60s i mean he's only alive for half the decade but that always feels rushed to me at the end it's like oh gosh we have to fit in the tencennial of disneyland the world's fair building walt disney world um it was nice to just really have this more under a microscope i feel like in this book and focus on those key elements in an isolated fashion 
Yeah, you both make a lot of good points there. And, and I appreciate the notion as far as the 60s often being rushed, because if we look at Walt's entire career, I think it's hard to disagree that those, if you want to say maybe from like 60, 61 to 66, when he passed away, was ultimately perhaps one of his most fruitful periods in terms of developing the the Florida Project, um, Mineral King, the World's Fair, Mary Poppins, you know, Enchanted Tiki Room, like all these like major properties and aspects of whether Disney lore or present day Disney as well. Like it was an integral time and it this really allows for such a nice and thorough examination. Absolutely. Something else that I really enjoyed about this kind of more of his writing style, but how he approached these topics, um, particularly I'm I'm going to use an example a lot of people know. So like the building of Disneyland. Um, so that's chapter four in this book, inventing inventing Disneyland, or is that the next one? Sorry, yeah, inventing Disneyland. And often when you talk about Walt in Disneyland, it always starts with the story of he went to Griffith Park and he sat on the park bench with his daughters and thought, huh, where there should be a place that all of us can enjoy together. But he doesn't start with that story. He starts with how Disney was in competition with other, um, what is that, movie studios in the Hollywood area who did have backlot tours and other things. And while also was thinking of, you know, that's not as interesting to sit there and watch someone paint because we do animation. We don't do our live action isn't always here. It's everywhere. So he was already thinking of having a park or something else for people to visit. He didn't really talk about the Griffith Park story and the park bench. And I really like that he wrote about things that some people that most people know about Disney, but took a totally different route and some stories that people aren't familiar with on your note about competition I um not highlighted because I don't like to mark up my books anymore but put a sticky um on the quote it that's opening of the chapter and it says a few miles up Riverside Drive from the new campus was Universal Studios which for years had opened its back lot to visitors it's not unlikely that Walt imagined the same thing for his studio I found it really interesting that he called out Universal specifically because we certainly think of Universal as a competitor to Disney in the theme park market now, definitely in Orlando. You know, they're only a few miles apart um, and have multiple theme parks and water parks. Um, So they're probably the biggest competition in Orlando. But to think back to the 1950s or 60s that, oh, right, like these studio tours that was another inspiration. And then, you know, Walt realized it couldn't be contained at the Burbank studio. And that's kind of what led to Disneyland. Right. Well, and there, there's so many books that go into the development of Disneyland that it's nice that this is only really a component because there's so much uh, more during that period that really contributed to the company's success and really influence in society. One thing that really fascinated me, and I've always been intrigued by Disney's role in really helping launch or help um, build momentum in the space program. And chapter 13 uh, is aptly titled Space Exploration and centers on some of the television programs that the company developed in the 1950s on this front. There was the Man in Space uh, special, um, Man in the Moon, Mars and Beyond and others. And, And Han writes uh, a specific sentence that I, or a couple sentences, I should say, that I feel are totally 
representative of um, Disney's role here. He writes, quote, it's no exaggeration to say that Man in Space is one of the most important television productions in the Disney canon. It predates by nearly six years President John Kennedy's call to put man on the moon, uh, end quote. So, you know, the fact that Disney was producing these specials, like really right around the time Disneyland opened, um, shows that the his interests and passions were extremely diverse, not just theme parks and films, but also in really technology and um, our country, our world's investment in reaching for the stars. Ooh, good pun. And he's just so ahead of his time. Like, you know, you you think now we're living in 2019, the space program has always been a part of our lives as young adults. Like, as you pointed out, it's before Kennedy even launches or they get to the moon. It's sad that he never got to actually see that happen. Yeah. I like the word that you use there, um, diversifying, because I think that's also just a really common thread of this book of what made the mid-century so profitable but also innovative for disney is that they finally had the capital and the tools to diversify so we are talking about space and space exploration as well as film as well as going into recreation spaces and entertainment and animatronics and that's why i think this century and this book is so important because it really shows off the diversity of disney that i think other books or texts or that i've read at least have not shown me before like it's there you know Disney does a lot of stuff, but this really highlights, like, look at all of the different skill sets that the Disney company has. That without this mid-century and without this diversifying, we would not have the Disney that we have today. And and it also translates into Disney experimenting with different mediums and different techniques to create their products. And Han doesn't shy away from um, some failures or missteps talking about how certain films were not huge sensations i think there was a reference to with sleeping beauty it was it was a commercial failure whereas 101 dalmatians which only debuted maybe 13 months later was a huge hit so he he addresses that not everything disney created even though the artistry of of both um films is just quite striking in in different ways and using Cinemascope, no less, um, which I think first debuted with uh, Lady and the Tramp. But yes. but Dis- but you know Disney had some f- major failures during this period that are still renowned today, but um, didn't resonate with folks at first. But I like that it shows the risk taking of Disney as well. I think we can, even though we're acknowledging the failures, we're also acknowledging that it might have failed, but it's because it's just never been done before. People didn't know how to receive it, and that's why down the road films like Alice in Wonderland, uh, Sleeping Beauty now are seen as works of art. It's accounting for that, how ahead of the time they were trying to push this and how innovative and pushing the bounds and risk-taking they were willing to go for lots of different things that, yeah, you're going to fail. But without those failures, you don't learn and know how to do new things. So another component of this book is the different Disney films, both animation and live action. I I briefly mentioned how Sleeping Beauty and 101 Dalmatians were um, quite notable achievements for the company in in different ways, whether it's Ivan Earle's um, beautiful uh, work for Sleeping Beauty, for 101 Dalmatians, really having the introduction of Xerox. But what were some of the maybe insights or, or 
cool pieces of trivia that you gleaned from learning about whether it be the animated or live action films debuting during this mid-century? Could we maybe start with Emily? Um, I'm looking back at the pictures because they're just amazing and incredible. Um, I really enjoyed all of the concept art because I don't think when we see the films that we the films themselves are really cool to watch and they're imaginative, but seeing the concept art for the live action and for the animated features, you realize just how imaginative these artists are and the illustrators, sorry, illustrators, animators, um, as well as the directors. And that was really cool to me to finally like get to see some of those thoughts. And then you're like, oh, that did make it to screen. That's really cool how you're able to take something you drew on paper and then make it real and make it move. Um, it sounds really simple, but getting a chance to actually just sit and look at some of the concept art and like mull it over was really impactful for me. I really appreciated um, going into the live actions. I think we all um, grew up with the Disney animated films being part of the Disney Renaissance in the nineties and having them accessible on home video. And I certainly love the parks, but I feel like the live action is an area where I'm not as familiar with. I do really enjoy 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So it was great to see some of that because it's a movie that kind of like, you know, it's a little bit in the past with that steampunk, but has its futuristic vibe. So I feel like it fits into that mid-century. But looking on pages 34 and 35, um, I loved seeing all of the different uh, posters for those theatrical releases of the live action films, especially... Um, for different countries, it's kind of like those were an art of themselves. Film is certainly an art, but then translating that to an advertisement is its own style within those decades. Oh, I love how you hit on on that, Courtney, because I had I had a note here specifically. Pages thirty four and thirty five <laughs> have awesome posters. They do, and there's um, I have to. I think it's a few pages before, maybe. Those are the posters for the live action. And then I don't have the pages written down for the, oh, it's 24 to 25. There's these great, like, Polish posters for the animated films. And these theatrical posters look nothing like the animation that's in the film. But they're really modernist in their, in their art approach. Like, I think these would be great to, like, hang in my home. Like, something different where it's a touch of Disney, but it takes you a moment to realize what exactly you're looking at. They have uh, posters throughout the whole book. And what was really, I that struck me about those is like looking at like page 63 has the Tomorrowland um, bobsled down the Matterhorn. And I buy those souvenir packs of the vintage posters. And it just seems so funny to me that like we collect them now as like souvenirs and artwork, but that was just like a legit advertising poster at some point that someone just went, oh, cool, there's a movie coming out. And now we're like, Disney art, I need it, I want it. Oh, I was just going to say, speaking of posters, I have um, the 1964 Carousel of Progress. It's just a reprint um, that I found online hanging in my home. So I'm like really into these posters. Well, and, and there have been some amazing books on this topic. Like there's the poster art of the Disney Parks that came out a few years back. Um, I want that book so bad. It's <laughs> so worth it. So worth it. <laughs> I've flipped through it at Barnes and Noble, but I haven't committed to it on my shelf yet. Same. I'm in the same boat. I always flip through it whenever I see it, but I haven't bought it yet. 
I think, and I'm not sure if it's still on sale, but I think at one point it was on sale at Costco and they actually had actual physical prints that you could take out um, that like accompanied the the book. So very jealous of um, folks who got a, their hands on that. Emily's like running to Costco right now. Yeah, it's down the street a- from my house. You have no idea. I need to pay a little bit more attention, I guess, in their book section, which I thought I already perused through thoroughly, but I might need to take another look or like unbury the books that they stack on top of each other. I had no idea that that was at Costco at some point. Game changer. Unfortunately, I I did not get my hands on that iteration of the book, but um, I I love how you also touched on the Polish style posters because it's pretty, you made the uh, reference that wouldn't it be awesome like just to hang something like that in one's house. It seems like that's almost like a missed opportunity for Disney. Why, Why not just sell those types of posters as well? There's a market. Yeah, there's the um, they do the attractions poster as a calendar. They've done that for about yeah. three or four years in a row. I know Emily, you collect those, yeah, as well. Um, I feel like they're starting to kind of run out of attractions posters, and they've started making posters up for attractions that have never actually been displayed. But this would be a great opportunity for them. I feel like people would be willing to get their hands on that as well as something different. Could we switch gears for like two seconds? Um, As we're talking about artwork on page 30 and 31, where they had all of the pages of the Sleeping Beauty book laid out, like the storybook that's in the opening of the film. And like they go through the exposition in the beginning about the princess being born and everyone being so excited. And then all the other pages throughout. I really loved that he included this in this book, that you could actually have a chance to look at the artwork because I feel like in the film, you only get three, five seconds to like see it. And you're paying more attention to the book page turning or you're looking at the you're reading along with the narrator. So I really I spent a good 10 minutes on this page just looking at each storybook picture. And I thought these this was just so cool to me. Yeah. And, and what's I totally agree with you there, Emily. And what's just awesome with this book is that there is even though it's only I want to say is it 176 pages there is ample space to highlight individual properties and give them the attention that they deserve um, one one that comes to mind going back to Dalmatians is on page 26 there's some really nice um, landscape type shots of different parts of the film by Walt Paragoy who is a, a notable artist for the company and those two would be things that I would, they're just so representative of the modernist era that I would love to hang that up in my, in my abode because it's just so evocative and almost like transported to another era. Also got to give a shout out to Mary Blair. Like you couldn't do this book without putting some Mary Blair art in here. And Emily and I are big fans of her work. Big fans. Oh yeah. When I hit page 54, 55 of just full page size, artwork from small world loved it and there are pieces that i haven't i think i've seen the giraffes before but on the opposing page on 155 i don't think i've seen those so i really i really enjoy that don han when he you could tell he's very intentional with what he picked and i like that there are some famous photos um or prints that you've seen before but i do like how 
he really picked ones that I, I haven't seen. Again, with the concept art, or like you were saying with the um, the backgrounds, like from 101 Dalmatians, it's not often the background art gets featured on its own without the animation in front of it. Yeah, I think I think what it comes down to is if you if one is to find a book on an individual film and it focuses on the art strictly of that film or um, that really massive tome, the Walt Disney Archives um, book from a few years back, which dedicates probably at least a dozen or so pages to each of the animated films. And then there's some nice background shots. But yeah, otherwise, in these more traditional mass market compilation books of Disney, you don't find that type of artwork, which is pretty sweet. I would love to be able to ask uh, Don Han how he went about looking through all these photographs or getting access to these. I could only imagine how many he looked at, let alone how many he actually ended up including. Yeah, I, I would be so inclined to ask him directly, will you pr- please produce a sequel to this book? All of the <laughs> all the art you couldn't feature in this edition, put it in the second edition. But let, I, I know we've been talking a, a lot about the artwork. Let, could we maybe shift um, and also discuss some of the photographs that are included? Because we see some co- common pictures that uh, many of us are accustomed to, a few of Walt that everybody's seen. But then there's some really cool behind the scenes shots of construction zones or film sets. Could, could you both maybe share your thoughts on the photography that's featured in the book? I always love seeing pictures of Walt that I haven't before. And I felt like I ran into quite a few in the book. Um, I had mentioned earlier, one of the particular uh, chapters that I enjoyed was Bowling in the Rockies. Cause just prior to seeing his presentation, I didn't know that the Celebrity Sports Center in Denver, Colorado was a thing. And there's like a great picture of Walt bowling. I love seeing him more like let loose and just kind of as your everyman um, more so like than you know, like something staged. Like that's just a candid shot of him bowling with kids in Mickey Mouse shirts behind him. So it was fun to see some of those. And there's um, also Annette Funicello presenting a bowling trophy. And I feel like Annette Fonicello is definitely another icon of this mid-century. And I think you'd have to take a second glance at Annette because you're so used to seeing her in Disney context in her Mouseketeer outfit that like seeing her in just like a normal dress, I was like, oh, that is Annette. <laughs> but yeah, um, some of the photographs, I'm flipping through. Um, I really liked the ones that take up a full page. Like I really loved, what page number is this? 88 and 89 that full page of uh lewis prima's band uh jamming out to a jungle book recording session so seeing some of those i i like seeing that other people that you don't hear about as much get featured and that i love knowing that these photos exist um, of musicians recording or people sitting at their desks drawing that was one of my favorites, though. I loved the band with, it's got King Louie and the monkeys in the back for um, I Want to Be Like You, and they're just having a jam session. And it looks like so much fun. I want to be there. I feel like he also really captures kind of just the fashion and the look of these decades. Um, I was reading this by the pool over the weekend, and my mom was in town for Easter. And I know she grew up in the 60s, and she always says, like, she loved the way that people dressed then. So I found myself showing her pictures like when they were um, there's pictures of the house of the future and I'm just like look at everybody all dressed up to go to Disneyland you know like really going now we have dapper day that kind of harkens back to that yeah I really liked also um, the world's fair and 
I know we want to touch on this because it's the anniversary, but seeing photos from that, because my dad always tells me, like, my dad likes Disney. He's not quite as diehard of a Disney fan as I am. But every time something comes up, he loves to tell the story. He went to the 1964 World's Fair. He saw Carousel of Progress. He went on um, Magic Skyway. And I just get so jealous. So I loved that there were pictures in here that I could ask my dad, like, hey, do you remember this? And he was like, yeah, I think he was a kid. He was only like eight. So his memories aren't super, super strong. But he remembers the feeling and the emotion. Um, so I loved like you sharing with your mom, like asking her about her experiences with the fashion and the time period. I loved getting sure that with my dad, someone who's not as Disney focused as I am. Well, and kind of on the same theme of family, there are some nice family shots of Walt um, in this book on, on page 61. There's one with him and his uh, daughter and grandchild on the Autopia, uh, which I don't think I've ever seen that before. That was another one I showed my mom specifically. I was like, oh, look, it's Walt with his grandson. Like, I've seen plenty of him with Diane and Sharon, but you're right, kind of when we're getting into these later decades, as a grandpa, there's not as much. On that same page, I also really like the photo of them assembling the monorail on a backlot set. (laughs) That's so cool. It's kind of funny because you see these, like, very traditional-looking houses and then a very modern, futuristic monorail on the same street. (laughs) Well, lots of contrasts, and I think that's kind of illustrative of the the era more generally. You're entering this phase of of time when there's all these really remarkable innovations, but yet, if we were to reflect on this era when we think of quote unquote like I don't know idealized view of of America, often the image that comes to mind is like a Weave It to Beaver or what we would see on television, and a lot of this era was very um, modernist, not only in terms of the art, but the architecture. And maybe one thing that comes to mind when I think of like old school Disney or old school America in the mid 20th century is the New York World's Fair. So a big portion of the book is dedicated toward the New York World's Fair. And I'm wondering if each of you could share some background context you had on the fair and the main attractions that were uh debuted there and eventually made their way to the Disney theme parks, um, as well as some new insights you gleaned from the book. Yeah, I feel like the 1964 World's Fair is a really pivotal moment for Walt. It kind of is one of his final projects and had such a lasting legacy, not only on Disneyland, but Walt Disney World. All four of these attractions make their way to the park in some capacity, you know, great moments with Mr. Lincoln is pretty much identical to what was presented at the fair. Of course, Carousel of Progress moved from the fair to Disneyland, then back to the East Coast at Walt Disney World. They've updated the finale, but the first three scenes, from my understanding, are very similar to what was presented. They've changed narrators over time. Magic Skyway is the one I'm least familiar with because the attraction itself doesn't make its way to the parks, but... The dinosaurs are in in the Dinorama portion of the train and the moving vehicles themselves kind of lead to other developments for Imagineering. So I think I appreciated that chapter the most just to get a better understanding of what that was and see more pictures of that. Um, It was nice to have them siloed into their own buckets because they all often are 
lumped together. I know Marty Sklar in Dream It, Do It uh, dedicates a large portion of his book to the fair. Um, but again, it kind of rushes through each of those. I agree. I really enjoy that they were in their own chapter. Um, I'm going to take a second in the Carousel of Progress, Progress Land. Um, I think something that I learned out of this, because we do get to see a variation of the attractions that were in the 64 World's Fair today, I think I didn't realize how what, what their piece was in a bigger picture. So like, for instance, um, Carousel of Progress, and we experience it today, we just see the Carousel of Progress. But I really enjoy that Don Han, he laid out how the attraction moved, like the different scenes and where the audience would walk in, what they would see first, second, and then the conclusion of like the walking out. So you got the whole picture. Because like, for instance, um, I'm reading a small piece from page 149 uh, about Carousel Progress. In the final act of the show, the audience sprang out of their seats and up a 160-foot-long corridor of mirrors where simulated stars and color photographs of GE's research were projected on screens etched within mirrors. Finally, guests were deposited on the, super, on the upper terrace of the building to see the Sky Dome Spectacular. So it would have been really cool to see how, like, Carousel Progress wasn't a standalone thing, but it was a moving piece of a larger narrative of these different attractions and even like small world, there were other things that went with it within the pavilion. So I don't think I really, before getting to read about each individually got to understand its bigger picture of like what they were trying to achieve with this attraction other than, Oh, let's look at how we've changed over time with our home appliances and electricity. Well, and I think those are all really good points. And if you think about each of the pavilions being distinct in different reasons, so small world being more reflective of uh, the world more generally and the children and culture, whereas you have Mr. Lincoln, and that's all about American history. Progress Land is about the development of you know, technology and how that's influenced American society. And then you have Magic Skyway, which attends to um, world history and other concepts as well. So they all, in a sense, the New York World's Fair is such a nice reflection of what Epcot would end up being in a sense. And these, each of these pavilions in their own ways really illustrate the various components of Disney theme parks. I like what you said about Epcot because I had that thought when I was reading about Magic Skyway and it was talking about here we have the dinosaurs. And like, as you're progressing, I was like, it's Spaceship Earth. This is the precursor to Spaceship Earth as we're progressing from the beginning of time through modern communication and quote, beyond. So I was like, oh my gosh, we had Spaceship Earth in 1964, <laughs> way before we even built it 20 years later. And the dinosaurs make me think of Universe of Energy too. Rip Ellen. I miss yeah. that. <laughs> Good times. Um, going back to your uh, comment about photographs and getting some of that behind the scenes, in the Small World chapter we have um, right on the front page next to Mary Blair is the track for the boat ride, for the boat vehicles, and seeing the track laid out, seeing it without the ride itself or the, the set is kind of striking that you're like, oh, it's boats. But like, I don't, I don't know how to describe what I'm thinking. But I think that's so cool, like, to see the different components. Like, the immersion is removed from it. Yeah. Like, this is the foundation. 
of that ride but like once you're actually experiencing it you're so engrossed in what's going on around you is that what you're going for yeah that you're not appreciating the um technological aspect of the imagineers who had to or wed workers um who had to figure that out and i know i find it always funny uh, when they said like walt they said walt put us into a room and he said i've got an idea for a little boat ride we can do and then when you see it, this picture of all of the pieces for the track, it's not really that little of a boat ride. It's, it's got a lot of parts. It's got, a, it's not so simple. When I feel like the Imagineers in that moment are taken aback because it just sounds so simple, like a boat ride. But then that leads to things like Pirates of the Caribbean, and then even just recently at Disney's Animal Kingdom, Navi River Journey. It's a little boat ride, but look how far they've come in the technology and the immersion yeah and I think that kind of speaks to how Walt was always so playful and maybe even simple with his language like kind of along the lines of with pirates even which is really not addressed in in this book but he I remember that old I think it was probably 1965-1966 Disneyland special where he walks through the set of pirates and he says we're going to do lots of things like (laughs) Or maybe it's yes. a reference to Haunted Mansion, but... Oh, he, they're both he, in there, yeah. Yes, yes, but it's just, he was just so, I guess, understated with, like, the level of immersion and um, novelty that would come through all of these attractions in different ways. Yeah, you're right. I'm surprised that wasn't mentioned, because that's the one with Miss Disneyland, Tencennial, Julie Rhymes, as he takes her around to show what's coming, and they were things that he certainly didn't get to live t- to see, but that falls within this time frame. Eventually, I guess some things had to be cut out, but one, that's one for of, part two. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And one other, just a fun fact that I absolutely loved, and I guess I wasn't this uh, familiar with particular dates, but Mr. Lincoln was playing in both New York and Disneyland simultaneously when it premiered at Disneyland on its 10th anniversary. So that's just amazing. Before Walt Disney World, there was one attraction that played in two different spots. Yeah, I didn't even realize that before either. I think I just assumed like they spent all that money on one of them and then they moved it quite literally like they did with Carousel of Progress. That is interesting. Now that you're saying it again, I don't think I really registered that when I read it the first time. That's crazy. Yeah, lots of just amazing things that were taking place in all different parts of the Walt Disney Company, really. And um, before we shift to some final thoughts on the strengths and uh, shortcomings of the book, I'm wondering if you, uh, and I know we've touched on uh, different moments during our conversation, but what are your thoughts of Don Hahn's writing style, both in telling the story of Disney in the mid-20th century, but also kind of thinking back to maybe some other books that he's written or times that you've seen him on camera or in person well this is my only experience so far with a Don Hahn book so this is my only reference to his writing style but what I really enjoy about it is that he has this way of being incredibly detailed but also incredibly concise that like he talked about the building of Disneyland and other authors who take pages and literally an entire book to write about it I felt like I got a very clear snapshot of what was happening, but it only took four pages. I didn't feel overwhelmed by information, but I felt very informed at the same time. And I really enjoyed that balance in his writing. 
Yeah, I also haven't read anything by Don Hahn. Um, I do own Before Ever After, which I believe he's also maybe a co-author on that. Um, but I am familiar with his work as a documentary maker um, with Waking Sleeping Beauty. And I just keep thinking, I actually re- recently rewatched Waking Sleeping Beauty again while my mom was in town. I was like, well, you'll like this. And it felt like a good refresher for me on Don Hahn. I would love to see this turned into a documentary. He's an excellent Ooh. filmmaker. And I feel like, you know, he's done the research already. Just talk to some people and get them on film. <laughs> Make it happen. Yes. I'm really hoping. So, when we were at the presentation, this was February 2018, he had talked about the documentary he's making about Howard Ashman. And then I was watching the other one. I was like, wait, what happened to that? And I looked it up and it premiered at a few film festivals in 2018, but hasn't been widely distributed. And I'm just like crossing my fingers. They're saving it for Disney Plus. Yeah, that would be amazing. I know it was very well regarded. And and I, I love how you touched on how uh, how Han is responsible for Waking Sleeping Beauty because Han is kind of a, a renaissance man. He's a, a writer. He's a filmmaker, producer. Like uh, he kind of can do it all. But what's so cool about this book is that he, he he's obviously known for being very adept in covering wide portions of time, like with Waking Sleeping Beauty, which was a 10 or so year period and mm-hmm. packed, packaged all that in, in 90 minutes. And and this is a lot of Disney history and 176 pages, but you're right. It doesn't, it never feels like it's too much. It's just right for whether it's the Disney connoisseurs like us, or perhaps even individuals who may not have heard about Progress Land before, for instance. Yeah, and like we were saying earlier, how he introduces these topics that people know Walt Disney was part of the World's Fair, but finding different entry points to talk about the designers he worked with and the artists, that he tells stories that have been told before just in a very different way, that it's refreshing. You can listen to those stories and read those stories with a new set of eyes, even if you've read about them before in other books. Yeah. That was very nicely said, Emily. I totally agree. Now, obviously, you know, one author cannot put it all in one book where you're chronicling 15 years. Were there, and this is not to be a leading question by any means, but were there any shortcomings that you identified in either how the material was presented or topics or things that weren't addressed or should have been covered in more depth? I think we identified that piece that we felt was missing, um, not really touching on Haunted Mansion and Pirates. But I guess if you think about it, those occurred in this mid-century, but they don't really represent the mid-century. So that wasn't quite his focus. You know, Pirates is hearkening back further and Haunted Mansion kind of has to be more of like a Victorian feel to it in its style. So I can see where he started to omit... um, Overall, though, I think I appreciated the concision. I always feel like I like to research and I like to dig in. So while maybe I would have loved to see a few more pages on Magic Skyway, I can always go and use that as a springboard to dig into more. Yeah, I don't have too many things I can think of shortcoming-wise, except for, like you were saying, parts where I was like, oh, I really like this topic. I want to know more. Like, I was really interested in the commercials, So I wanted to know a little bit more about that, but it felt like enough that I wasn't like 
asking questions of the author while I was reading. Like, I felt like they weren't credible to talk about it. And that's why they cut it short. Um, I felt pretty satisfied. But like you were saying, Cordy, just like, oh, I can go find out more if I want to find out more. I think we just appreciated how concise it was because yeah, after, we after just came off paint. of Ink and Paint, which is also a coffee table book, but it's 400 pages and right. the font is smaller than this one. So Emily and I estimated if you were to shrink Ink and Paint down to like a normal book size to match that font, it would be over 600 pages. So we're like, ooh, I don't know how I feel about a coffee table size book. And then I looked through it and I was like, no, Emily, we can do this in like two days. It's fine. <laughs> so yeah, really so, easy to read. <laughs> and again, I think that's a benefit of this book. They're like, Ink and Paint is that super in-depth you get everything, which is why it's long and detailed. And there's a place for those books, but there's also a place that I really enjoyed this, that I wasn't feeling overwhelmed with information. I didn't have to take a break. I literally read this straight through um, because it was vignettes enough that I felt energized every time I turned the page. So I think the way he laid this out, it can stand with, it's a different type of coffee table, quote, coffee table book, I guess. Yeah, and I love the notion of springboard because there are so many more books that could come out of any of these topics, and a lot haven't. Like, wouldn't it be awesome to see a book on um, Disney's role uh, with Cal Arts, for instance? Um, at least to my knowledge, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but um, like, I think that would be fascinating. Or the, I don't know, even the Xerox process. Like, that just sounds so cool. Yeah, there's, um, you'll have to talk to, in a few months, an author, Andrew Kist. We talked to him about his historical tour of Walt Disney World, but he's currently working on a series about the 1964 World's Fair. So I think he's doing a book for Every each of those attractions. Yeah, so definitely yeah, something to be on your radar. Hey, you know what, there's, there's so much good product that is coming out of, yeah. whether Disney officially or folks who are very knowledgeable oh about Disney. Yeah. If, if any of you listeners and all of us included, if you go on Amazon right now and you look at the schedule of books to debut in the fall, it's staggering. Denise from Mouse Steps on Twitter always um, does a good job of tweeting out different things for pre-release. And I feel like I'm always replying to Emily and like looping her into the tweet. I'm like, we have to do this one. We have to do this one. You don't so know how many times our book lineup just for this year had changed when we planned it out around Christmas. We planned out our 2019 year and already half of it's been changed just because we find so many new things that we're just so energized on doing. It, it just prompts all of us to want to make our podcast daily just to cover it all, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if only this that's, could be a full-time job. That's the hard thing about having this book podcast. Like, I love it, and it keeps me reading, but I'm like, but I need to have the time to read the book. So that's why we have a similar re release schedule to you, where it's only one or two episodes per month, because it's like, you know, you want to be informed about the topic and really commit to it. So I'm not just going to skim the book. I read all 400 pages of Ink and Paint. Yes, we did. <laughs> 26 <Very> days. <laughs> <laughs> Very commendable. So kind of concluding our remarks on yesterday's tomorrow, we've talked about a lot of things we've loved about this book. Are there any particular strengths or highlights that you would want folks to know as to why they should maybe consider picking up a copy of this book? Maybe we could start with Emily and then Courtney. Um, I'm going to reiterate something I said earlier. What I think is really cool about this focus on that 15 years in the mid-century 
is that we get topics that other Disney um, blogs, books, uh, documentaries just don't focus on as much. They get glossed over or they're mentioned. But I really, again, like the commercials, Mineral King, I know we've mentioned these a number of times, but that really stood out to me. And if you are interested in the mid-century Disneyland take this book so that you can also see what other things were happening in with the Walt Disney Company more than just Disneyland and the 1964 World's Fair, which are great in their own right, but there's lots of other diversified um, mediums that Disney was working in that I found extremely interesting. Yeah, I think there's something in this book for everyone because it covers the parks, it covers more of those side projects of Walt. It covers live action. It covers animation. And we certainly sat down and read it all the way through, but it is a coffee table book. So I think you could even take a more leisurely approach. Um, it doesn't, I think the the chapters pretty much could stand in isolated fashion. It doesn't reference itself too often. So if you open it and you look at the table of contents, you're like, oh, I want to know more about CalArts. You just, you can flip to that page and read it that way. So I think I would recommend it for that as well. Very good. Yeah, it's, it in that way, it's a very versatile book. It can serve a wide variety of purposes depending on how you're approaching it or how much time you want to allocate during any common sitting. Um, one quote that comes from actually the description is, the pure creative output of the Disney studio during this period is truly monumental. And I entirely agree with that statement after reading through this book. It's absolutely astounding. And to think of how massive Disney is now, but to see, to put that in relationship to what they were able to accomplish back then with um, many fewer assets and, and certainly fewer people and resources, it's just really, really remarkable. So um, those are, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a good ending point for there. Yeah, you sum that up beautifully. <laughs> Just tie it up together, a nice package, right? Um, and, that, and that's what this, <laughs> this book accomplishes. And, and I think it's worth uh, noting too that even though the retail uh, price for the book indicates $40 on the sleeve, can find, fo- folks can find it cheaper on Amazon or eBay or wherever you find books. So um, it is uh, it is relatively accessible in that way. All righty. Well, we have covered a lot of Disney ground, but now we reach the point in our show where we conclude with some Disney-related questions that I ask all of my guests. So it's time for the segment, Ask My Questions and Get Some Answers. So this includes three standard music-related questions, two bo- standard book-related questions, Really definitely want to get both of your insight on that, given the nature of your podcast, as well as one random Disney question. And considering uh, there are two of you, uh, maybe we can alternate. Um, So maybe, Courtney, if you can address the first question and then Emily, and then we'll rotate with subsequent questions. I think we can both answer. I'm open to that. But if you want to do alternate, I'm okay on time. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. All right. So first up, uh, what Disney soundtrack did you most did you listen to most while growing up? Courtney, if you want to start, and then uh, over to Emily for the same question. Sure. Um, so mine is a little unconventional. It's not a Disney film soundtrack. I actually had a cassette tape of Epcot Center soundtrack. So it's all of the 
older attraction songs. Um, One Little Spark is certainly in its own form in the current iteration of Journey into Imagination, but things like Kitchen Cabaret, um, the song from World of Motion, It's Fun to Be Free, Tomorrow's Child. Um, And I used to nap to it as a kid. So I feel like I have this weird relationship with Epcot where I was born in 1992. So I definitely experienced some things like Journey into Imagination, but maybe don't have as clear of a memory of something like Horizons, but I still feel a connection to it because I know all of those songs and they're ingrained in my subconscious. That's awesome. I was a little more conventional um, that I listened to a lot more of the film soundtracks, but I had a lot of tapes and I too would listen to music when I went to sleep. But I specifically remember, I don't remember the name of the tape, but it was a Disney princess tape. So it was a compilation of lots of different songs from not just one soundtrack, but a bunch of different movies. And I remember that for some reason on this tape, it had the Broadway recording of home from beauty and the beast. And I loved Courtney and I bond very much over our love of beauty and the beast. That was a spark of our friendship 2011. Um, But I remember that even though I knew the film so much, every time I would watch beauty and the beast, I'm like, where's home. I love this song. Where is it? Um, so I listened to, I was your stereotypical, listen to a lot of princesses, um, but we had a lot of tapes on rotation. At some point, I remember in my mom's car, we just went on a Hercules binge. And I, that's all we listened to for the longest time. And then my sister danced to A, um, a Star is Born in uh, one of our dance recitals from our dance studio. So Hercules got a really big binge at some point. Oh, that's hilarious. That's awesome. And actually, I think it was recently announced by Thomas Schumacher that Disney Theatrical is trying to rework uh, Beating the Beast again to the stage. So I'm not sure if you both have heard that news, but it's pretty exciting. Yes, it is. I will be there. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) I need to get back to New York. But I love that one. Courtney, you can crash on my couch. Yes. (laughs) I'm not far from New York. No. (laughs) My parents live only an hour and a half outside of New York City. So I get up there as much as I can to see as many shows as possible. No kidding. That that accessibility is awesome. And mm-hmm. I think and I think Hercules is going to have some sort of production in the park later in the summer, too. Yeah, I heard oh, that I on your um, episode with the author who had done something on Disney theatrical production. So that's yes. great to hear that they're expanding into some other films. It's, and Hercules uh, doesn't get a lot of park love. Well, maybe let's hope that Disney, you know, tries to merge its different disciplines and have like park attractions as a theatrical show that would be be pretty neat hey they like you know what why why not it's you know corporate synergy make it work yes um (laughs) so um for our next question emily if you can answer this one first and then courtney what what disney song most recently got stuck in your head oh goodness it's hard to pick (laughs) they alternate so much um the most recent song, I don't know, this is not Disney, that was stuck in my head is because reading, at, talking about the World's Fair, Meet Me at the Fair from Meet Me in St. Louis has been in my head for like three days because of reading this book. And one of the chapters is titled Meet Me at the Fair. So I haven't had a Disney song recently stuck in my head, mostly because Meet Me in St. Louis has been in my head because of that chapter. Um, but I think one that usually comes to mind for me that I always listen to um, is probably getting the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack, um, particularly the opening song, Bell. I just love 
it's exposition, but I love all the voices and the storytelling that you can just see in your head. So that's one I always go to and usually pops in my head at some point. So as a follow-up, I have to ask which version of Bell, original animated, theatrical, or Emma Watson? I have all three <laughs> in the same playlist. I have like, yeah, I have all three albums in my Disney playlist. So it kind of goes to all of them. Um, I like different things about each of them. Um, like I like how there's more story and more outside characters in the Emma Watson version, how they speak a little bit more, that they feel more real. It's not a sing-songy. Um, but I really enjoy the original animated production that I think is the one I listen to the most. Very cool. For my song, I've had Nowhere to Go But Up from Mary Poppins Return stuck in my head a lot. Um, we just bought the Blu-ray digital copy maybe like a week and a half ago. So it's it's been on pretty frequently in my house. Um, we have the Apple TV, so I'll often put on a Disney movie when I go to bed to just like lull me into sleep with the music. And I feel like I've like woken up at the end and that's been again, ingrained in my subconscious. <laughs> oh, and a common tie with both of those films is Angela Lansbury. Very so. true. Yeah. <laughs> She's still rocking it in her nineties. Pretty oh, amazing. She's got the magic. Vo- she has a magic voice. Just brings you that nostalgia, brings you warm feelings. She can sing anything and I will listen. Totally agree. So our third Uh, music question Uh, we'll start with Courtney for this one Uh, what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music okay so I wanted to say Hunchback but I listened to other episodes and two people have said that already (laughs) Um, but I really do think that one is so underrated and beautiful Uh, but my backup choice is Pete's Dragon that's another one that I'll often put on to go to bed to mostly because it's just so filled with music i don't think people realize how many songs are in that movie it feels like it just moves from one song to the next so it's a great one for like comfort or if you wake up in the middle of the night just to like ease yourself back into it all right so i have a serious answer and kind of a silly answer um so my more serious answer i've always enjoyed robin hood there's not a ton of songs in that movie but i just always found them also comforting and yeah, I just really enjoy Robin Hood. Uh, my sister and I always sing Udalali to each other. And uh, was it the the rooster? His name is escaping me. Like when he's whistling, that was probably a can't really hear my good whistle. Yeah, hey, ten years of flute lessons taught me how to. Ten years of flute lessons taught me how to whistle. I'm I don't play flute anymore, but I can whistle. <laughs> I don't know if that came across. Hopefully, on your recording. But like, I it's just such a nice daily. I don't know. I just love the soundtrack of Robin Hood. I always find it very comforting and fun. But uh, something that Courtney and I talk about a lot is sing-along songs. And I don't know if this necessarily counts as a Disney movie, but the um, Disneyland sing-along VHS of, like, making memories, walking down Mm -hmm. Main Street USA. I don't know if that counts as an underrated Disney movie soundtrack or Disney soundtrack, but that's underrated but i love those park songs that's, that's that was kind of like my entrance one i'm sorry that's the best of the single oh yeah for sure and that got me that was like my comfort food of like i can't go to the park because i live in i grew up in new jersey so i would put in that vhs because i got to see haunted mansion even though it was disneyland it wasn't disney world but i was still like i'm in the park and these very disney-esque songs that you don't really hear anywhere other than walking down the middle 
walking down Main Street USA, I don't know if I really heard the other songs in the parks or used elsewhere. Yeah, we, so we got some 70s love from that answer and also a nod to sing-along <laughs> songs. I absolutely love it. I told you it was going to be random. I had a serious answer and a not-so-serious answer. Fantastic. I remember growing up watching the sing-along, the Disneyland fun one and thinking to myself, so I, I, I was born in 92, so by the time I was watching these, it was probably mid-late 90s, and and I was thinking to myself, why aren't those attractions still in the park anymore? I was so disappointed, like the rocket jets and some of the mm. other ones that had already mm-hmm. gone away. Oh, well. I was always just confused because I had only visited Walt Disney World. And I was like, we don't have a mountain with box sleds. What is this? And then my mom explained that they're different. Or the castle looked different. And I'm like, why is it a different castle? <laughs> Didn't make that connection until I was maybe like eight <laughs> Literally, though, the first time I went to Disneyland in 2005, like, all I could think of was Disneyland fun. I was like, this is the Haunted Mansion part, and that's where Donald's dressed as a ghost. Like, I was just connecting it all. I went to Tom Sawyer Island, and I was, like, singing the Great Outdoors song to myself. Yes. <laughs> Underrated, listeners, if you have never seen Disneyland fun, it is completely on YouTube. You can watch the entire 25-minute uh, sing-along song. Well worth it. There's also a French version that's basically shot for shot at Disney yes. Paris, which blew my mind. <laughs> I was just going to mention that. that. I have it on DVD because my stepsister was very kind. She knew I loved my VHS. And one year for my birthday, she got me like the DVD that they released for Disneyland's 50th. And if you switch the language mode to French, it plays the French Disney. Like I was like, you know, I just expected it to be Disneyland fun, but in France. But no, they committed and they went to Disneyland Paris. Oh, I am smiling so much right now. <laughs> yeah, just because I think we're all on the same same wavelength. I was literally going to mention the Disneyland Paris version. You need to so. do an episode about sing-along songs. You know what? I think there's definitely room for that. And I, and I think it's worth noting for listeners, um, if, if they really love the sing-along songs and that whole era, uh, if you check out Tammy Tucky's podcast, she interviews uh, many of the stars, the child stars who are now uh, full-grown adults um, oh, wow. from those episodes. So really interesting interviews. Um, so definitely check those out. Okay, um, we have a few more questions, but I know we could talk about sing-along songs all night. <laughs> so for books, and so we have to take into consideration that we've talked for a long amount of time on Yesterday's Tomorrow. But prior to this book, Courtney, if we could start with you, what is the most recent Disney book you had read prior I read one this morning, so Emily might have the same answer. Uh, The episode (laughs) will be out by the time that you release this, but tomorrow night we are recording um, an episode on Marvel Disney Kingdoms. Um, So we're doing the graphic novel of their Figment series, Figment 1 and Figment 2. So I read Figment 1 in one sitting this morning, and I will probably finish Figment 2 this evening. Yes, I have the same answer. Um, I finished Figment 1 and 2 right before I started reading um, Yesterday's Tomorrow um, over this weekend. I just had spring break um, from school this past week. So I have I started with Figment 1 and 2, and then I read Don Hans Yesterday's Tomorrow. And then I'll get started on whatever the next book is that we're doing after Figment. So I, I think we need to start a trend for, I don't know, on Twitter, something like reading a Disney book a day, like hashtag Disney book a day or something. <laughs> that I, Figment was easy to read in a day. Maybe if I stick, stick to the graphic novels. Otherwise, Ink and Paint took 26 days. So you got to keep it short, but that would be fun. 
already up to date of like what I'm reading now. Mm. Just posting like what I'm Disney book I'm reading right now, even if it's going to take a couple of days. Yeah. But yeah, there's so much. And I would love to know what other people are reading because like we said, we've only scratched the surface even when we find something new. There's so much out there. So it'd be cool to see what other people are reading. Absolutely. Just have to figure a short enough hashtag for uh, for that purpose. (laughs) But uh, similarly, on the Disney book note, um, Emily, if we can start with you for this one, if Mm -hmm. you could if you could write a Disney book on any topic, what would it be? Oh, you're picking my brain. So I would definitely go down the history route. Um, Something that I mentioned on our podcast, I also am a tour guide at the National Archives in downtown Washington, D.C., and I get to do some research there occasionally. Um, And I've knocked around the idea of writing a Disney book, and it's just been so hard to pick of what I want to do. But something that kind of popped into my mind recently, literally this week, uh, because of an exhibit that we just had, actually a couple of years ago, but someone was asking me about my intern experience and I was talking about this exhibit. There was a court case where Disney sued a another, I think it was during the commercials, commercial age, sued another studio because they produced a character that looked too much like Mickey Mouse. So there was a copyright infringement case. And I would love to dive a little bit more into that and how Disney's copyrighted their characters and how they use those drawings. So that it's really technical and specific, but I get to dive into that kind of stuff with my work in downtown uh, Washington, D.C., working at the archives. And that was something that stood out to me because I didn't know how much um, holdings our national government has that has Walt Disney's name on it. And I would love to dive a little bit more into that more uh, law or government connection that Walt Disney has. For me, um, this is something I would seriously love to do, but I have to figure out what I can do legally being employed by the Walt Disney Company, but I really want to do it. Um, I don't have a specific idea in mind, but I do know it would be nonfiction because I loved the research, sorry, excuse me, I loved the research process, you know, being an English major and like really digging in to sources. I know Emily was very similar. Um, So something that would allow me to do that and then translate that into like a free-flowing um, book. I think it would either be a biography about someone in the Walt Disney Company or something about the parks that maybe hasn't been explored as richly. Very cool. Well, I think there are endless opportunities and I already have a working title for you, Emily, for um, court cases and things like that. Disney Legal Inc., something like that. Ooh, Legal Inc., I like it. So, but yeah, like... I don't, and as far as what you're saying, Courtney, as far as biographies, like, I'm trying to think who would be, there's so many people that Disney has yet to even cover in, I in, in that form. I would love to do one on Dave Smith, because he recently passed away, Aww. or I'm not sure if there's one about Roy E. Disney, having just watched Waking Sleeping Beauty. I know he's certainly referenced in the books about, like, the Michael Eisner era, but really just his legacy as well. I fully support the Dave Smith. He's, <laughs> he's my dream job. I it's, know. Oh, I was so sad, sad to hear of his passing. Because you and I knocked around at one point. And we were like, oh, what if we could interview Dave Smith? That'd be cool. And now we're just like so heartbroken that we'll never that get that That would be my dream interview. But that's my dream is dead. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's sad. Um, the gentleman I had on the podcast, Christopher 
uh, Lucas, who wrote, just came out the top Disney book full of different Disney lists. And, and Dave Smith was a huge influence in both his life and also the development of the book. So hopefully, hopefully Disney can uncover enough stuff about his life to have someone um, documented in that manner. That'd be cool. And, uh, and for listeners to check out, too, uh, because you had mentioned uh, Roy E. Disney, there is a book um, by Dave Bossert. Uh, called Remembering Roy E. Disney. Oh, perfect. Um, and it came out, I want to say 2013. Yeah, 2013. And it was uh, shortly after he passed away. So um, that's another one for all of us to check out. For sure. All well, right. Now you have your answer. Now you have to do Dave Smith. Yeah, I guess that decided <laughs> it for me. Or you could do, you know, Roy E. Smith's, or Roy E. Smith, Roy <laughs> e. Disney's um, children. Um, because that's they, true. They've had a role with chronicling the parts of Disney history as well. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Roy Patrick Disney. Um, so, all right. So the final random question, we'll start with uh, you, Emily, if that's okay. Okay. Um, what is one Disney attraction from the 1950s or 60s that you would have loved to experience when it first opened and why? I think I will have to go with Carousel of Progress. There's so many. I would have loved to have seen Lincoln. I think I would have loved more the World's Fair than necessarily Disneyland. I'm not super well versed with Disneyland. I've never been. Um, but again, those stories from my dad where he's talked about how cool it was. He doesn't remember a lot of specific things because he was under 10 years old, but he remembers that feeling, that experience of visiting the World's Fair. And he really remembers Carousel of Progress. So I would really love to have seen that in its original version within the context of the pavilion. Like I was saying earlier, where you get the full experience, it wasn't just the attraction, but everything else that went with it that, told the narrative that Disney and um, G wanted to tell. Fantastic. Over to you, Courtney. Sure. So this has like been on my list for a long time, but it's like physically impossible to do so. But I remember just seeing maybe video of it or photography at some point, and it is mentioned in the book, and that is the flying saucers that were in Tomorrowland at Disneyland. Like you're bouncing around, and apparently it didn't work very well, and that's why the attraction closed, but they just look so fun. Yeah, I, I mean, have that poster. Yes, that's in the. There's a. I'm looking at it on page 49, and an image of like a jazz band playing on it. But I'm like, I just, I just want to ride it one time. I know they tried to do it, um, as like kind of a redone version of it with the Luigi attraction. But then when I visited, it was already the Luigi's rockin'. Uh, I forget the full name, but now the cars that spin, not the bouncy tires. An alien flying saucer just is not the same in Toy Story. <laughs> no. Though I do Sim- love the alien. <laughs> similar title, but different execution, right? Yes. But um, it, yeah, it makes me think, too, of like some of these attractions that are so short-lived, but have such an impact in our memory because of how the flying saucers was depicted um, in some of those f- funny films where everybody's dressed up in the 60s, like in their suits and everything, and they're just bouncing around. So um, that's pretty sweet. Makes me think of, I'm not sure if uh, y'all ever experienced uh, rocket rods out at Disneyland. I no. didn't. Did you? Yes. But ah. it was, it, it was, pro- I think it was August 2000. So the attraction had been around for a bit, but there was so much, it was just such a chaotic period 
for not only Disney, but like Tomorrowland was just in such disarray and and you have this ride that's constantly breaking down. And I remember being absolutely thrilled by it, like being a little kid, but being so disappointed on my next trip. And there was the little uh, little placard outside saying, we'll reopen in spring tw- 2001 after refurbishment. And it never reopened. That's what they said about 20,000 leagues under the sea. And I just, I, my mom said I did it. But again, I was like an infant. I'm like, no, I wish I could remember it. Yeah, I've never, I have no memories of 20,000 leagues either. Oh, well, thankfully these things are documented on yes. film. But it's still not the same. Absolutely. Well, we've taken a quite a, a fun trip down memory lane through reading this book. And now let's bring it back to the present. How can listeners get in touch with each of you and check out Book of the Mouse Club, the podcast? Sure. Um, so if you want to keep up with Book of the Mouse Club, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Book of the Mouse. Uh, they can also email us bookofthemouseclub at gmail.com. Um, if you'd like to keep up with me, Courtney, I'm on Instagram at Great Gatsby, like Great Gatsby, but my last name, um, and at Courtney underscore Guth. That's C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y underscore G-U-T-H. And then you can find me, Emily, at both Twitter and Instagram with the same handle, at Emily underscore McD. So that is E-M-I-L-Y underscore M-I-C-K-D-E. Fantastic. Well, I know there's a lot of great content for listeners to check out in your library of episodes as well as the content to come. So once again, it was such a pleasure in having you both on as we reviewed yesterday's tomorrow. And uh, yeah, I hope we have a chance to chat again soon. Yeah, thank you so much. We'll have to have you maybe on as a guest reader over on our side so we can continue the, the great discussions. Thank you. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much for having us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Once again, a big thank you to Courtney and Emily for joining me on Notably Disney. It was such a blast to have them on. You probably could tell that we had a really, really, really fun and interesting conversation that could have gone on for many hours. So uh, many thanks to them for coming on, and I encourage you to check out Book of the Mouse Club. They have lots of great interviews and book reviews. So if you love the content you're hearing on Notably Disney, I have no doubt that you'll find their content to be very, very much enjoyable too. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports, that's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.